Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. This is Dr. Mark List, uh, back at you with another episode of the Primary Care Pod. Uh, instead of today uh, looking at our primarycarepod at gmail.com inbox, because guess what? Uh, nobody has sent me anything to talk about. Uh, we are instead are going to hit up uh, one of our favorite returning sponsors, Eileen's Essential Oils. <clears throat> Here's the ad. Oh, by the way, uh, thanks, Eileen Essential Oils, for sponsoring the podcast. Uh, you, too, can sponsor this uh, uh, podcast by sending an email to uh, primarycarepod.gmail.com. Uh, so let's, uh, let's get to the advertisement for today. Dear Primary Care Pod listeners, just around the corner, coming to a city near you, the Wuhan virus. Now, this coronavirus is quite deadly, and if you want to protect yourself, you better get some peppermint essential oils for your nostrils. There is nothing more essential for dealing with a deadly disease outbreak than rubbing some essential oils all over your body. Nothing ever is going to get you better treated than some essential oils. So check them out today at your mid-level marketing agent on Facebook today. All right, thank you so much. Bye. All right, that may have been the worst ad I've ever done. Um, if you have any questions, concerns, uh, want to talk about uh, any topics on the podcast or have any other jokes for me, send them to primatecarepod at gmail.com. Let's start the podcast. Primate Care Podcast is written by a family physician for an audience of other physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, residents, medical students interested in primary care topics. This is not a podcast for patients and should not be used as medical advice. This is also a personal podcast for use in my own time and solely reflecting my personal opinions. Statements of this podcast do not reflect the views or policies of my employer, past or present, or any other organization with which I may be affiliated. Thank you for listening to the Primary Care Podcast. I'm Dr. Mark List. Here to bring you the latest news, guidelines, and updates from primary care sources around the globe. Keeping it under 15 minutes long because you're in a hurry and I'm not that smart. All right, party people, we are back at it. Uh, today we're going to do something a little different because uh, I like to spice things up a little bit. I have accumulated, since I started doing this podcast uh, three, four months ago, a gigantic stack of papers uh, from various journals, from various magazines, uh, various articles that I printed off the PDFs to because I'm a huge nerd bomber. Um, and I'm going to just uh, hit up some topics really, really, really quickly, and we're going to do some rapid-fire stuff, and hopefully you uh, learn some really good information from today. Um, first article comes from uh, JAMA, and this is a, U- a USPF uh, task force, USPFTF, uh, screening for abdominal aortic aneurysm. Uh, so here, real quick, uh, what is this recommendation? This came out in uh, end of 2019, uh, and this is uh, an update to previous ones. There's not much difference. The big difference is um, uh, USPFTF recommends a one-time AAA screening with ultrasound in men ages 65 to 75 years of age who have ever smoked, uh, ever, uh, even one cigarette. I think the I think the range is like they have to have like 10 cigarettes a day, but really they've, they've narrowed it down to just ever smoked. Um, I, this is something that I do very poorly because I don't think about this, especially in former smokers. Um, but this is a, a very uh, B recommendation. It's so not a recommendation, but uh, uh, some decent evidence to support this. And uh, definitely there's some benefit to it. Now, uh, the change too is for men ages 65 to 75 years of age who have never smoked, the guideline now says selectively offer screening to men who do not have a smoking history rather than routine, routinely screening all men in this group. Uh, this is something that I do not do at all. Um, I, I do not do at all, um, even though this is uh, a shared decision-making. You know, uh, this is one of those things as the treatment gets better. Um, the topic talks about although the risk for rupture varies greatly by aneurysm size, the associated risk of death with a rupture is as high as 81% uh, with AAAs. So uh, this is something that I do not do at all in my practice, and that is screen men 65 through 75 who have never smoked. 
but I think uh, that there does uh, there is some benefit to at least having that conversation with people, um, especially then that brings up family history and and talk about risk factors. For women who have never smoked, uh, absolutely never, 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 never screen them. That's a waste of time and money for everybody. For women 65 through 75 years who have ever smoked or have a family history of triple A's, a really insufficient, uh, really insufficient statement. So an I statement, uh, uh, really hard to assess the full balance of benefits and harms based on the recommendations that we have. So again, these are asymptomatic adults, assess the risk and screen, uh, for those people who have smoked. And then for men consider smoking, um, evidence shows that the overall benefit for screening all men in the non-smoking group is very small, but the question is how much risk is there and the cost associated with it's pretty small as well. So that's why it's not a D or an I, that's why men who have never smoked get a C grade for their recommendation. So um, again, just a a reminder, I think it's something that uh, I specifically, when I review these guidelines, I never have a discussion with that and I at least need to have the discussion. So uh, that's it for that study. Let's move on to the next one. All right. And here's a very spicy meatball of a topic. Uh, This is going to be its own pot at some point because uh, I feel very, very strongly about this one. Um, and there's uh, both sides to the story, so I'm not going to s- pretend like it's an open and shut case. Um, but this study comes from January 14th of 2020 in JAMA, uh, cognitive testing of older clinicians prior to recredentialing. Okay, so this was uh, the uh, Medical Executive Committee at Yale New Haven Hospital in New Haven, Connecticut, elected to require a neurological and ophthalmological examination to all applicants wanting to reappoint to their medical staff who were age 70 and older. Um, and I, I won't bore you. They don't, they don't have a lot of the – they talked about a cognitive screen of battery of tests were developed and designed to balance brevity with a broad coverage of abilities relevant to clinical practice. Um, other places have done similar things as well, but they've used like uh, mini-cog or micro-cogs They've done uh, uh, formalized assessments. Um, Some places have done even uh, really detailed uh, assessments that take a significant amount of time. Uh, They're not very clear on what they used in terms of the overall testing. Um, But basically, they found that in the first, they tested everyone over age 70, and they found that 12.5% of clinicians who did the testing uh, were um, incompetent. Uh, 19 individuals, 13%, sorry, were identified as performing substantially less well than their colleagues on the global score of screening neuropsychiatric testing. Uh, Basically, they found that these 13 providers uh, should not have been practicing medicine. There were a significant portion uh, that um, also were kind of borderline that they uh, had some candidates here. So they said uh, um, 57% were fine. 24 or 34 candidates, which was 24%, proceeded to credentialing process, but were rescheduled for rescreening in one year because of minor abnormalities on the screening test results. So they were kind of borderline. There were some questionable things on their test, but wasn't enough. And then, yeah, so 13% uh, straight out bombed it. And I think about um, in my role here with Animal Medical Group, I talk with a lot of providers, and I've absolutely seen providers that should. Um, we should be taking the keys away from Dr. Grandpa in these cases. And uh, I feel very strongly about that. Um, I've mentioned a couple of them to colleagues and administrators. And we don't, at our at the Animal Medical Clinic, we don't have any policies about this. And uh, it's one of these things where it's hard to assess from the outside, uh, being somebody who isn't doing full chart reviews or audits and doesn't have, you know, uh, knowledge of, you know, what they look like, what they were practicing like five or 10 years ago. Um, I'm not one of their close partners. Um, but uh, from, a, from a distance or from, from what I can observe in my limited time with them, I, I feel that there's a, a clear issue. Um, 
if your organization does not have something in place for this, uh, you could be, I mean, there could be some, uh, you know, a ticking time bomb waiting to happen. You know, how long do you, do you let somebody continue to practice who's practicing substandard medicine until you just, you know, take away their credentialing process? You know, what's that, what's that process look like compared to, um, somebody who's abusing substances behind the scenes and whose work is, is struggling? Is there a difference? Um, there's a, there's a study in Utah where uh, a place in Utah tried to do the same thing to prevent recredentialing based on age, and it got shut down at the state level at the pol- at the due to political balances. So um, there's a there's a lot uh, a lot behind the scenes. There's a lot of uh, pros and cons to this. Uh, I, this is a whole can of worms. We're going to open this on another podcast because I feel very strongly about this. Um, but for now, we're going to stick a pin in it and say um, maybe we should consider uh, formalized cognitive testing as a medical society organization. Um, and again, there's, man, there are some really spry 70 year old patients and physicians who are practicing medicine way better and way faster than I am. Um, there are probably even 80 year olds who are still very spry and active, but, um, the study is in the science is pretty clear on that. I've, I've done a lot of this research, um, and we will definitely come back to this on a different podcast, but, um, for now I'm going to put a pin in this one and uh, we'll come back to it later. Uh, next topic for today is the topic of cardiovascular polypills. Um, we've talked about this on the podcast very briefly before, um, and but basically polypills are uh, a combination medications with multiple, not only blood pressure medicines, but also statins in a single pill. Um, it reduces pill counts, reduces pill burdens. It has increased rates of, um, of adherence to the medication regimen. And in general, we know that it's likely better to have multiple low-dose blood pressure medicines than it is to max out a single blood pressure medicine and then go to a second one and then max that out and then go to a third one and max that out. Um, There tends to be a a better effect with blood pressure at lower dosages and avoiding side effects. Um, There's a a score of meta-analyses and and, uh, randomized control trials, primary prevention studies, for example, um, that have shown significant benefits. There's a poly-IRAN trial, which was a 3% absolute risk reduction in cardiovascular events with over 6,000 participants, almost 7,000 participants over five years. Um, and, uh, but there's a, I think there's a lot of data to show the power of polypills. Now, polypills are difficult because there is no one polypill, you know, and they all have different combinations. Um, and if you do have to titrate them, polypills become really hard to titrate because then you have to, um, mix and match and, and, and try other pills. So, but this is certainly something that I think for people who are high risk, who have metabolic syndrome, who have multiple issues, I think the idea of eventually going to a poly pill, you know, here, even here in America, they're really more common internationally, but I think we have 20 years of data here. Um, in one of these review articles, they talk about 20 years of data on the benefits of poly pills versus standard of care. And global ASCVD reduction and prevention with a fraction of the cost and a fraction of the healthcare resources makes a ton of sense internationally. But I think there's probably some benefit here in America as well, even despite the fact that we have access to resources um, and access to physicians. Um, I think in general, if we're talking about polypills to improve ASCVD and, and improve ASCV, ASCVD event outcomes and prevent a, a lot of things at a population health level, I think there's some real benefit in polypills. And some of these articles really, really, really agree with me on that. And uh, so I think there's more to come on that. Again, I think there's definitely limitations. You know, if let's say I want to increase just the hydrochlorothiazide part or or drop out hydrochlorothiazide, then you have to get a whole new polypill or you have to adjust certain types of them. So it's it's more complicated than it 
then it maybe um, there's a there's a lot of ease to just prescribing four different pills, three blood pressures and a statin um, versus a single poly pill because it's able it, you're easy to titrate it, you're easy to, it's easy to see which individual pills somebody might have a reaction to. But again, at low doses, uh, side effects are usually pretty minimal. And I think there's some significant benefit. So more to come on that topic. But uh, I think um, know about polypills and know that they have significantly um, a, a lot of good data about them. So more to come. Uh, next study also comes from JAMA. Uh, this was back in uh, end of 2019. Uh, the effect of high-dose vitamin D supplementation on volumetric bone density and bone strength. So I thought this was... A, a, a curious trial because what they were assessing was, do adults need to take anything more than the recommended daily IUs uh, of vitamin D? Uh, for example, you know, most people talk about taking 400 international units to 600 national units for just daily use, but is there benefit to taking higher doses? Because many, many, many adults are taking, you know, 2,000 units, 4,000 units, uh, even higher units uh, every day or every week. Um, and and without really any any significant uh, benefit for most of these people. Now, uh, of note, when we look at these these people in this study, uh, they were randomized to uh, looking at uh, so they had baseline levels uh, of vitamin D drawn, and they ranged anywhere from 30 um, nanomoles per liter to 125 nanomoles per liter. So these were not people who were having low vitamin D. These were not people whose vitamin D levels were, you know, single digits or even, you know, low teens. These were people who are 30 to 125. So they were not low vitamin D, and these adults had no osteoporosis, okay, at baseline. So what they did is they took these patients and they put half of them on low-dose vitamin D, just 400 IUs per day, which would be your standard replacement dose. And then you had the other half that they put on 4,000 IUs and then another chunk where they put on uh, 10,000 IUs, okay? Uh, and that's per day. Now, again, I don't, uh, 10,000 international units per day, I don't know that anybody takes that, but the 4,000 international units, I, I see people taking multiple thousands of international units every day who do not have low vitamin D anymore. Um, so at this, what they found was for these people that were taking unnecessarily high levels of international units of vitamin D, they found a significant reduction in their bone mineral density scores, specifically at the radius and the tibial. Um, and um, I think that this gets into the point where <clears throat> we have some health advocates who, you know, tout the, the claims uh, of vitamin D supplementation without any benefit, in this case actually shows harm to vitamin D supplementation where it actually lowers your bone mineral density if you are not deficient in vitamin D levels. Um, so again, uh, just a, a small little uh, tidbit for you. Uh, so in general, hopefully today there was uh, you learned some things. There's uh, a lot of things I want to put a pin into and come back um, and talk about at other times. Uh, but hopefully there was some valuable piece of information for you here. Uh, we'll get back to you next week with some more information and uh, more fun topics. Thanks for tuning in. And remember, you don't have to stay up all night to stay up to date. This has been Dr. Mark List with Primary Care Pod. Uh, thank you and have a good night.